KPFA Benefit has wheelchair access. Flashpoints, Dennis J. Bernstein will host. Get tickets at brownpapertickets.com or indie bookstores. April 30th, the gloriously outspoken Vijay Prashad. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Javelin Richards. Welcome to Cover to Cover, Javelin's Bistro here in the studio. Today in the Bistro, I am bringing you literature of the arts. And not only literature, but 600 pages, over 600 pages of literature that I am going to say is a good summer read. So instead of having multiple books to look at, you have one, not because of the length, but the intensity and how it doesn't start. It doesn't stop at all. And the writer of this book, my guest today, is David H. Weisberg. The name of the novel is called The American Plan. It's a daring and suspenseful tale of survival set in South Florida during the 1950s and early 60s. The American Plan is a virtuous did not say that right, and that's okay, ride through the mid-century American psyche. The American Plan is the first in a three-novel series exploring the rise and fall of Sunbelt America from the Korean War through the financial debacle of 2008. Welcome, David. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. This is your first novel. That's correct. And... Give uh, our listening audience an opportunity to understand what's in this novel. Sure. Um, so the novel is, I think of it as, as three things. Uh, first, it's the story of uh, this man, uh, Philip Narby, who deserts from the U.S. Army during the Korean War and ends up more or less hiding out in the then uninhabited jungles of southwest Florida in the 1950s. The other parts of the novel are, it's also the story of a place. The place is southwest Florida, my uh, the, the west coast, as well as the east coast, the Everglades, the barrier islands. And the third part, just as important, is it's the story of, of a time. So this is the height of the Cold War. This is uh, Jim Crow South. Um, it's a very tense time in United States history, and the Korean War, in, in my view, was set the pattern for everything from Vietnam to Iraq. So the aftermath of Korea should have taught us a lesson, and it didn't. And, of course, the, the Cuban Revolution is also part of the story though from the perspective of South Miami, where a lot was going on. So when the novel opens, you have Philip Darby sitting in a cafe, and he is waiting for someone to arrive. Philip Darby, as a character, is a drug addict. He is addicted to women. He's in hiding, but a lot of his actions seem somewhat suicidal why 
those combinations inside of him and and what and what is he what causes his addictions so he he deserts from he deserts for several reasons from the army but he's involved as you find out later in the novel <clears throat> he was involved in one of the uh, earliest battles during the Korean War and um a lot of the uh a lot of Americans don't know much about the Korean War, and at the beginning of the war, the American forces, they were they were called UN forces, but they were almost all American soldiers and the South Korean army, uh, were almost defeated by the North Koreans who were backed by the Soviet Union and later China. He was wounded terribly in that beginning battle, and he was sent back to Japan where he was given morphine and then other drugs, and that's the root of his addiction. And he's in Cuba now, and he's still in pain, and he's on the run, and he's afraid that if he gets caught, he could be tried and executed for treason. <laughs> so it's his anxiety and his fear, as well as his physical pain. And um, okay. And so, uh, uh, from what I also understand from the character, has he? He's taken on a new name, though. Correct. A new identity that's stolen from someone. Correct. Did that person, the original Philip, did he die in the war? Good question. You don't find out uh, in this novel. <laughs> it's the first of three that this one features Philip Norby as the main character. In the other two novels, he's a secondary character. Uh, he steals it from a bank account, which is part Great. of the backstory of how he, of why he comes to Cuba, and where he gets his money. We don't know if there ever was a Philip Norby. All we know is that there was a bank account in the name of Philip Norby at the bank, the National Bank in Havana, and he's able to withdraw money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the novel reads almost like a detective novel. That was my take as I was reading it, like this, like you're walking through, because at every turn there is a certain level of anxiety. Because you know he's on the run, you know he has an addiction, his legs are twitching under the table, he has fears about what's going to happen if he doesn't get his next fix, he has fears about who to trust, he's in a cafe and someone comes in the cafe and sits at the table and watches him, what's that person's name and what's his relationship to Philip? So that's a man named Bill Knowles. It's implied that Bill Knowles works for the CIA and he has a cover and his cover is that he works for a paper manufacturer called Albright Paper. We find out a little bit more, a little more about this in the novel. I would say that the novel, I use the structure of a detective or espionage novel for this book, but it is not an espionage or detective novel because, as uh, the reader will find out. Philip Norby may be his behavior may seem to indicate that he's involved in some great intrigue, but there's a big question as to whether any of that is real. So in my mind, it's more of a psychological or even existential suspense story, and I also use now when you say involved, that involved in what. You say that it's almost as if he's involved. Well, for example, he okay. um, he gives money, mm -hmm. he funnels money right. in a way 
to Ernesto Campo, mm-hmm. another character. Who he meets on the boat while he's trying to get from Cuba. He's leaving Cuba, That's correct. right? That is correct. And he meets him on the boat. Right. And there's this, this very well-dressed, dark man with his fine mustache, very good-looking and he's suspicious because, again, he he's, doesn't want to get caught. And they develop this interesting friendship because Ernesto cannot swim. That is right. And something occurs, and he can't swim. And so here he looks at Ernesto in the beginning, and he's like, okay, this man could be someone that can get be caught, and he's or hiding something, and an incident happens. And suddenly he's saving this man's life. And so that begins their friendship. Ernesto says, we are mm-hmm. friends now, you saved my life. I don't want to give away too much of the story, but part of the story does deal with the Cuban Revolution. And uh, some of Narby's behavior indicates that he has a stake in the outcome of the revolution, almost as though, is he funneling money from some U.S. source? And there... I do, uh, the whole novel is told from Philip Narby's point of view. So there's no authorial explanations, and that's what I like in fiction. You learn everything through the anxiety and fear and desires and hopes of the main character, and nothing more. Uh, but even But through that lens, you find out a lot about attitudes in the U.S., uh, towards Cuba, the Cuban Revolution, which ran from wildly enthusiastic support to uh, wanting to crush it from the moment that Castro appeared on the scene. Um, even the CIA at one point seemed to be supporting Fidel Castro, perhaps because they thought he would do his bidding once he overthrew Batista. It's a very interesting historical period, and that's one reason that I was drawn to this material. Why did you write this novel? Like, what what happened for you that you woke up and said, "Okay, this has to happen"? That's a really long story. Uh, short answer: I grew up in Southwest Florida, <laughs> and uh, I've always wanted to be a writer. But uh, my a creative writer and a fiction writer. But I took a long detour uh, in academe, and uh, when I quit academe and started to write fiction, I knew that somehow I had to draw on my experience from growing up in this part of the world. And I was very young when my family moved there, and it was Jim Crow, Florida, and I saw it as a child, and I didn't really understand it. So I wanted to draw on that experience, but I didn't want to write about myself. I Absolutely not. So it just started from a seed, a spark of like, I'm going to draw in all my other interests, but I need to root the book in something that's deep within my own personal experience. Because there is a lot of uh, um, racism throughout the book with some of the characters and how they feel about blacks, how they feel about... Uh, I mean, everyone has a stake in hating somebody to some degree, which is um, somewhat uncomfortable as a reader. And as I shared with you earlier, there was a part in the novel, as a black woman, as I was reading it, I closed the book and said, okay, I washed my hands of this, this, I'm done. Um, particularly since Philip, the main character, up until that point where I closed the book, seemed to be the least racist person 
among the characters and even says at certain points in the novel, that's not my thing. And the, another character tries to educate him on how to treat blacks. You know, you can't love black people. You can't treat them like they're okay. Otherwise, you you have problems, which I'm going to ask you to read a little bit about that character in a little bit. But then, at the, then Philip at some point makes a statement about Becca, who is a, an 18-year-old black girl who works in that area in, uh, I guess, it's a, uh, she's a prostitute. That would be the title. And that um, he speaks about her in an unfavorable way. What did you understand about that character and what choices? Did you see that in the South as well where you were growing up or where did you get these details of information that you decided to put in Philip's mouth? I got all the details from history mm-hmm. and and memories, uh, especially in uh, high school. So by the time I went to high school, I won't say where it was in Southwest Florida, Um, but the schools had to be integrated by law but they were still segregated inside so already in the 1970s as a high school student I participated in segregation all my classes were white all the black all the classes with the black kids were all black they had the black teachers so (laughs) That was in the 1970s. How was it in the 1950s? I had to make it brutal. I, there was no honest way of dealing with it. I'm a huge fan of Taylor, Blanch, Taylor Branch's three-volume history called America in the King Years. I drew on that greatly and a lot of other uh, books. Uh, and Philip Norby, you hit the nail on the head. He's a racist. But he's nowhere near as bad as a lot of the other people. And he will defend a black person against these white locals because he likes them much better than he likes these white people he has to deal with. So I tried to be honest. I tried to not pull any punches. And I knew I ran the risk of alienating some readers. And I'm grateful that you... Kept going. <laughs> well, I, I continued as a radio journalist and I also wanted to, uh, as you said, realize that this was taking place in a certain period of history and some of those truths existed. And then I also came up against the fact that some of those truths still exist today. And that was the struggle for me. And so I'm for, as I said to the audience, uh, the a novel is 600 pages, and I am 400 pages into it. I intentionally did not finish reading it at this point because I want to be able to do it. I didn't want to have the deadline to our interview, but I wanted to be to go home and continue the process and think it through because I think it is a wonderful body of work. The writing is fantastic. You have these political stories, these agendas that happen throughout history, but then you have this, these personal unfoldings in people's psychology, the way they experience each other, and they don't, they, they don't hide, even though they don't even speak. Through his mind, you get a chance to see the clock ticking, what's going on, what's going on. So the suspense is there. No one trusts no one, and there was one of the characters. Um, I wanted you to read from, and his name is Vich. 
Yeah, Carl Vetch. Vetch, Vetch. And he's an interesting, uh, he is he is a core southern nasty person. He is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and he's one of Norby's nemesises. And Norby has to uh, deal with this vermin-like character. Um, he kind of makes my flesh creep. Uh, and I wrote him. <laughs> uh, so uh, he has a very interesting backstory. I can say it in two sentences. Um, Florida was notorious uh, during the early part of the 20th century for their lumber and turpentine camps. And they used basically modern slavery in the form of indentured labor. So almost always it was a black man. He would be sitting on a bench in a town in Florida. Policemen would come up and say, you're you're uh you're a vagrant we're arresting you take him to the jail the judge would say six say you know 60 days in jail or a hundred dollars and the man would say i don't have a hundred dollars oh well here's a man from the lumber company he'll pay your hundred dollars you can work it off in the in the turpentine camp and of course the camps are way out in the middle of nowhere and so everyone who works there has to buy all their food and clothing from the camp store gee it makes it really hard to pay off that hundred dollars. So it was a form of indentured slavery. Vetch was the ran the store at a turpentine camp. But by this time, by the time the novel was is taking place in the fifties, those camps are gone. So Vetch is stuck in his derelict store with a little bit of land that he doesn't even own, way out in the middle of nowhere. And he is desperate to find a way to make a living. And he latches on to Philip Narby. Another white man uh, from the north, he can tell, a well-educated man, because he thinks that Norby is hiding a secret, and he thinks he knows what it might be, and he's going to blackmail Norby. Mm -hmm. And there's other details inside of that blackmail that we won't give away. Yes. But also there's a part of the writing where you say that he makes your skin crawl. Um, but you also were able, as a writer, to also at least hint that... He's has an inner struggle he's trying to work out, and we I didn't quite get what it was, but I do know that like at a certain point he's been there for fifteen years, yet he walked in the restaurant and no one speaks to him. So there's some kind of social brokenness in him that lends a little bit of curiosity slash empathy, if you will. Um, I'm so glad that you see it like that. That's exactly what I intended. Uh, Vetch is hated by the rest of the whites because he associates with black people in a way that disgusts the more upright white Jim Crow racists <laughs> that live in the town. Interesting. Interesting. All right. And the re one of the reasons I wanted you, uh, first of all, this is Javelin Richards of Cover to Cover, and my guest today is David Weisberg, and we're talking about his novel that just came out, his first novel. He's written other things, including a play here that was ran for five weeks with Central Works in uh, Berkeley. He's written his first novel, The American Plan. And before he reads, I'd like to say that David has been, is going to give away three books. Uh, the phone number to call to get one of the three 
books. Again, it's a wonderful summer read. It's a hard read. It's a, th- it's a thinking read. It's actually one of those novels that you sit down and you decide to have a dinner party after a couple of your friends have read it and you sit there and have a very rich discussion you might not have otherwise on the planet, quite frankly. Uh, the number to call is 510-848-4425. Toll free 800-958-9008. And, um, so we have three books to give away. And if you also have a question to David, please feel free to ask that as well. All right. So now David's going to read. Okay. I just, I, I just wanted to say before I read, um, the book hasn't actually been released yet. Release date is April 20th. Okay. So. All right. So, um, I'm going to read a little bit, uh, about this character, uh, Carl Vetch. So this isn't the main character, um, but uh, this is Vetch, and he is, uh, well, I explained uh, who he is. And he has an accent, and so I'll try and read it as I heard his voice while I was writing. Vetch flicked his sodden cigarette butt out the window and unfolded a, a piece of limp soiled paper. Here's the way I see it. This here's the store. This here's the gas pump. I already got the electric in the well. These here are the tourist cabins in the end of Sawfish Point, at that cove where I got that boat ramp and such. Gonna get me one of them ice machines, too, so I can keep bait and soda pop and beer. Problem is getting them county boys to do what they's obliged. After they put in that electric wire, the country's supposed to improve the road out to my land. Only when Putman done pulled out, they reneged. More or less cut my throat. Now I figure, once we get to the, the deed to that land, make it legal and such, the county going to come round too. Ha! Maybe even I'll join up with that chamber of commerce. That's all very interesting, Carl. Very impressive. But I'm sorry to tell you, the company in New York said no go. I, I ain't talking about that New York company that you re- say you working for. I'm talking about you and me. I done told you. I know what them Putnam boys did out there. Poaching them pines on other folks' land. Breaking the law breaking my contract you and me we could get that land cheap if we go about it the right way because you got the money you can get one of them new york lawyers to write them a letter that'll scare them show besides i got me possession we sitting on something big you can't see it now but wait until thanksgiving and christmas all the way through easter all them folk driving down to the keys and such on the highway they got to pass right by that road ain't no other way we put that sign out there on the highway we get my road fixed. Ain't no one going to drive another eight hours and they can get the best fishing in the whole damn state right here. Topping, snook, snapper, bonefish, crab too. Whatever kind of fishing them tourist folk want. They buy the bait and tackle and provisions at my store and the gas for their cars and boat and motors. They stay in my cabins, put the water at my, put in the water at my ramp, put up at my dock. See what I mean? I done thought it all through. You and me, Nobby. Fifty-fifty. Once them Putnam people understand what's what, they're going to sell for less than $50 an acre. You can't walk away from that, son. Don't be a fool. <laughs> and that was a. I wanted to hear his voice. So I'm so glad you agreed to read that. I wanted to get a picture of him, just reading about him. You can't. There are moments you cannot like him, but there's also moments you could see his brokenness, which in your humanity, you have to at least offer him that. You're broken. You something bigger than you broke you. You say that women in your life that has read the book, some of them were, as I closed it as a woman, as a black woman, and said, okay, that's a wrap. And you said that there are women in your life because he's he's addicted to sex, 
but it, it he he says it's um it's his animal urge, and so he sums up women as he meets them and did, gives their good points, their bad points. This one has wide hips. This one might have been pretty when she was in her younger days, but but he sort of negotiates his his animal lust and says, okay, I can get past all that and do it. What was your choices for, for that to take women? For him, the character, and to categorize the women and say, okay, flip of a coin, yep, I can get through this here. He's, as a young man, he's almost killed in the Korean War. He's severely wounded. He never has a chance to meet a woman in a normal way. He's a deserter. He's addicted to drugs. He's afraid. He doesn't know how to speak to women, and he longs for the touch of another human being. He puts it in those terms because it's the only terms that he understands. Um, later in the novel, he falls in love Willa. with a, an abstract expressionist painter, no less. I won't say how that comes about, but... Again, this is all based on things that, things like this that actually happened in this part of the world at that time. Um, and she too is addicted to sex. And so he's found a kindred spirit. Mm. Um, so, and I don't know if I would say addicted to sex. I would say that He's a very sexual and has never experienced love, and he has no family, no home, lost at least partially his memory, and I think he's longing for something like love in the form of a human being touching him, fulfilling him, but he sees it through a 1950s hyper-masculinist lens. That makes sense. And so and it also makes sense as I'm, as I'm talking to you in terms of Willa because there's a place in her that's disconnected but at the same time longing. So whatever her survival skills as a woman artist and whatever her background is that she's trying to figure out how to reach that thing called love. And there's a part of the book that uh, she's afraid of water and something happens between them, which may be one of their ways of acting out love. Could you read that part? If I can find it. <laughs> right. And so, again, we're listening to David Weisberg, his first novel uh, that he's written, and he has given away three today uh, for callers. It is a, a, a wonderful, complicated read and well-written enough to 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 go through it so we won't because we only have a couple minutes left to go so what we'll do is just talk to share with us what happens in that part of the story between the two of them sure so um uh, narby uh ends up uh living in, in more or less in a pine and palmetto jungle in florida it's a way of him protecting himself i won't say more about that but he again he's afraid of detection uh but it's ugly it's an ugly hot malarial place and he discovers that there are these beautiful islands uh just off the coast there's no bridge but there is a ferry and uh it's on this island 
where by chance he meets Willa. Um, and it's a long time between his meeting her and their involvement, but there's an immediate attraction. And as he gets to know Willa, he finds out that she is indeed a kindred spirit. She's, I shouldn't say kindred spirit, her attitude towards sex, marriage, being a woman, matches his idea of being a man. To him, he is attracted to her because she thinks about sex the way he thinks men think about sex. It's for pleasure. She doesn't want to get married. She doesn't want to have children. All right. So there you have it. Uh, as the show closes, The American Plan by David Weisberg. And he has read a little bit quite well from his novel. And this is Jalvin's Bistro. I will see you actually on the third Monday at Women's Magazine at 1 o'clock in the space between us. That's a live show as well. Stay tuned. Bye-bye. Young Oakland poet Janaka Hodge is hands down, unequivocally, my favorite writer of words. All day, every day. She writes with the grace of a dancer, the bars of a rapper, the heart of your best friend, and all of the swag and soul of Oakland. So speaks David Diggs, Broadway star of Hamilton. Janaka will appear with her brother, musician Chukwudi Hodge, on Wednesday evening, April 5th, at Impact Hub Oakland, at 2323 Broadway. I'm Janine Etter, honored and delighted to be hosting this KPFA benefit. It's wheelchair accessible. Get advanced tickets through brownpapertickets.com or Marcus Books and other indie bookshops. That's April 5th, Chinaka Hodge, the swag and soul of Oakland.